Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode, you'll hear Greg Stone. I was like, who's being the dick? And he goes, well, yeah, me. What are you going to do about it? And I just go, not on my watch. (laughs) That and more. But before that, you know, mailing your letters and packages has just gotten a lot easier. Thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can mail and ship anything, anywhere, using just your computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. And it's so easy, anyone can do it. You just click, print, and mail. With Stamps.com, you buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk. They do all the work for you. Stamps.com even gives you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail. And setup is easy, too. In minutes, you'll be printing your very own postage. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio. And right now, you get this special offer when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is uh, Hardy's Jet Boy Tart... Wait, what the fuck is this? Hardy's Jet Band. I guess I threw a boy in there for... You know, it's always a good idea to throw a boy in the mix. Now, kids, we're calling today's episode Double Take. These are stories of people who were surprised to discover new sides of themselves or, or find themselves doing things that kind of opened up new windows for them. And I'm kind of in the midst of a double take of my own right now. I, I just announced to everyone on Twitter and Facebook that I, I'm planning on making 2015 a year of health and vitality by giving up pot and alcohol completely. For 2015, and I've already started on it, actually, with these two months prior. I'm three days into it already. I might do a full-fledged story about it at some point on the podcast, but, um, you know, I gave up drinking for nine years and then started up again last February and had a, <laughs> a hell of a time. I love, love, love alcohol, but I'll tell you... Risk and the Story Studio are getting busier and busier. I'm going to be 45 next year, and I'm just feeling like I've got to grow up at least a little bit at some point. I don't know how. I don't know how it is I should grow. Am I going to become a little less kinky or uh, more monogamous? Or am I going to become a lot less goofy? Am I going to become, you know, a lot more serious? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I thought that taking these two vices of mine out of the mix for at least a year would help me to maybe find out how to move into the next half of my life. I already know. That my friends who are in Alcoholics Anonymous will not approve of my going about this on my own, in my own way. I know a lot of people say these things should be done only one way. And I also know a lot of Risk fans will be disappointed. People, you know, writing me to say, oh, fuck, we wanted to share a joint with you when you come to town. People will say... Does this mean you're going to stop recording your own orgasms and putting them on the podcast? Like this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Who knows what the future holds? But I'll tell you what. You know, uh, Risk fans have gotten into the habit of daring me to do this or that and then share the story. Well, maybe this is the year that I should dare everyone out there to... Take on something, a project like I'm doing. Take on your own, doing something radically unlike what you normally do. And let's see what happens. Now we're going to hear a terrific story from Greg Stone, told at the Risk Live show in New York City. Here he is right now, Greg Stone, with a story we call Not On My Watch. Uh, I am a rage monster. Uh, I really don't think we can walk 
a mile in this city without finding a place where I have flipped out on somebody for some kind of thing. It's like, it's all about justice in my head. Like, I've been to a bakery, and it's like, they've shorted a person, and I'm like, you're gonna fucking die for that! Like, I'm just, I flip out very quick. I say things that are way too extreme. Like, in my head, I'm a living comic book. It's insane. I mean, I was walking in my dog once, and uh, this woman just goes, watch your dog. And I was like, what? And I just hit her with a dog biscuit. Like, I just threw a dog biscuit, <laughs> hit her right in the face. And she's like, why would you do that? And I was like, I just threw another dog biscuit right, right in her face. Because I don't think you should be acting that way. Like, I'm a psychopath. Like, I'm teaching people lessons in my life. It's not good. Uh, it started a long time ago. I was, uh, so, I was going to say this is one of the first fights. Well, it's not one of the first. I've been in a million fights because of this psychotic. Like, I'm not, like, physically, but it's, like, I get into people's faces, and then they back down because I'm a little bit bigger. Like, you can get away with a lot of that. Uh, I was in high school, and we went on a snowboarding trip. Now, I grew up in the south end of my town, which was, like, you know, very poor. The north end was very rich. South end was poor. So in the snowboarding trip, I only knew one kid who I went to high school with. So uh, his name is Chris. He's a physics teacher now. So you can imagine what he looked like in high school, okay, just to give you an example of what kind of body he had. He's the only kid I knew. He was in the front of the bus. They put me in the back of the bus with a separate school, so they, we just had this other school coming with us. It was Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Uh, I didn't know any of these kids. I'm sitting next to this girl. I didn't know anybody there. So I was just kind of freaking out. It's kind of because Kevin was kind of in this story because they uh, made us watch Scarface over and over. But I brought a video. I brought a VHS of the state. And it was like I had every episode. So we put it on. I was like, hey, we're going to watch the state. They, they were just, people were like, put Scarface back on. Like people were like, just like, we watched Scarface four times in a row from New Jersey to this mountain. And I was like, it was psychotic. Uh, so I'm sitting next to this girl and she's overweight. She was, she was a big girl. And uh, there was something very cute about her. Like she was really cute. She was sweet. She was eating like a full box of Twix and she had like the wrappers all over her. But I was like, ah, you know, we were in high school. She didn't become herself yet. But it was, she was cute and she was nice. And I'm talking to her a little bit and we're watching the state. And she's like, I love, I love this show. I'm not kissing his ass, but it's part of the story. Uh, and then the people in the back of the bus start hitting her with spitballs. Now, like, in my head, I'm like, WWCAD, what would Captain America do? <laughs> He's not gonna stand for this shit. So I'm like, I'm gonna say something. Now my mom was always like, if there's ever a bully, get in their face, say something, they'll back down. Uh, that's bullshit, that is not a thing. Okay, these people will fight you, they're animals. So I stand up and I'm like, Who's being the dick? Uh, now, to give you an example of what my body type was, uh, I was a very, uh, very good, uh, aggressive inline skater. Okay, so that's the kind of I'm working with, you know, just you don't want to fuck with a guy who's got, you know, eight wheels on at all times. It's, it's like working with ankle weights. So I stand up and I'm like, uh, you know, like, who's being the dick? And this guy stands up. Now, his name was Guy. If your name is Guy, you're a dick. That's just a fact, okay? If you were, your parents raised you to be an asshole. It's like naming your kid Napoleon. It's like, we want you to be a lead. We want you to be a fucking prick. So we're going to name you Guy. And he lived up to it. Like, he was a complete asshole. Stands up. And I'm like, you know, like, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because this guy is uh, outweighing me. Uh, he's been trained 
but he's like a wrestler, so like he's going to like wrestling practice. He knows how to do things. I just have four corn CDs that are amping me up. Like that's my go-to. I have my chain wallet. I'm the Adidas. I'm like, yeah, all day I do about sex. I don't. I don't know. I'm still kind of young, you know. <laughs> Whatever. I was like, who's being the dick? And he goes, well, yeah, me. What are you gonna do about it? And I just go, not on my watch. <laughs> Which isn't even the right time to say that in the fight. Like, I should have gotten up and been like, not on my watch. But he was like, what are you going to do? I was like, not on my watch. See you later. And I should have just left. Like, I'm not going to do anything. But I was like, not on my watch. And uh, he goes to make a move, kind of. And I grab the two railings on the side of the bus, lift my body up, kick him with both legs. He grabs my pants, pulls my pants and sneakers off. I fall on the ground in tidy whities You know, in, in like, you know, ninth grade, you didn't get into boxers or boxer briefs yet. Like, I was still, like, classic tidy whities I probably wore for four days straight. Who knows? I I'm all fucked up my head. Uh, I'm on the ground, and he starts trying. And I, their whole school is holding me down. I'm kind of, like, weaving around, and he's trying to punch me and I look up and I'm like well this is where I die like this is how I'm gonna die this is the end of the story this is the end of Greg Stone but that's fine we had a great run uh, you know you kicked that principal in third grade that was a fun thing yeah I kicked a principal yeah fight started in second grade and I broke the fight up and uh, they were like you're, you're suspended because you had to do with this and I was like uh, no I'm not I stand on the legs of justice that's what I said in second grade to my principal <laughs> who then tried to carry me out of the gym class. I kicked him in the crotch, called him an old fart man, which in second grade, that's like saying the N-word. Like, that's pretty big. That's a big insult to, like, in your second grade. My mom picked me up, and she was like, you got to relax. You can't do that kind of shit. Relax. So I'm back. I'm on the floor of the bus. He's got his fist in the air, and I'm like, well, I'm going to die. And I just hear, not today, motherfucker! And like a flying squirrel... My friend Chris jumps from the front of the bus, lands on this guy's arm. His whole body was on this guy's arm, and he's just like trying to swat him off. He, using physics somehow, he wrestles him to the ground. He's like, E equals shoulder block, and wrestles him to the ground. Fight breaks up. The teachers break the whole thing up. I sit down. I'm sitting in the chair, no pants, next to this big girl who looks at me. She goes, uh, you didn't have to do that. And I looked at her and I said, a pretty woman like you should never be treated like that. I was like in my, I'm like a fucking psychopath. Who talks like that? Who talks like that? And then I just started making out with her. Like I was just like, if I'm doing this, we're doing the whole thing. We're doing the whole story. This is your night, baby. This is your night. And I don't even know if she wanted it. Like it was just kind of, that's where I learned that if you kiss anybody, like 80% of the time, they'll probably just go with it unless you're a complete freak. So I just started making out with this girl. She, in a turn of romance, takes off her hoodie and now is just in her bra. Uh, so I'm in my underwear. She's in her bra. I put on her hoodie, like, that's how big she was. Like, I put my leg, had a crotch hole, and like, it was still like giant sweatpants. And I sat there in this kid dynamite sweater. She came over. The teachers were flipping out. They're like, she's got to put her shirt on. And she's like, I'm not putting anything. He's got to be in his underwear. They, they, they gave everybody a bunch of towels and shit. Uh, and then we made out 
the entire weekend. Just like, cause we were like in a hotel for like this, you know, this thing. And I would just knock on her door and I was like, are we going to lunch? Are we doing lunch? And she was like, eh. And we did. And it was weird because I wasn't even into her. I just wanted her to have that story, which is, which is crazy. Uh, it's just crazy talk. And, um, that's the end of the story. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. I'm coming to get you. Who's the man? Huh? Who's the man? Fuck with me, and we'll see who shits on the sidewalk. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Go ahead. Make my day. Shit just got real. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Not on my watch. This is Risk. This is Fink behind me now. And in a little bit, we're going to hear from a very dear friend of mine going way back. Ben Grant is a fellow member of The State, the sketch comedy group. We just did a reunion, all 11 of us, for Jack Black's Festival Supreme in Los Angeles. But Ben is seriously one of the most remarkable artists I've ever known. Uh, He wrote so many sketches, so many amazing sketches every day that we were together in the state. He's written so many movies, like Night at the Museum, shows like Reno 911, just a remarkable source of creativity. And I think you're going to be blown away by this story he told at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles that happens every fourth Thursday at the Nerdmelt Theater there. But before we get to that, A story from the one-of-a-kind writer, comedian, performer, Christina Wong. Someone who is just as smart as she is hilarious. Here she is at the Nerdmelt Theater in Los Angeles with a story we call The Whiteness of the Whale. I could be wrong about anybody else So don't kid yourself, kid yourself it's you right there, right there in the mirror And you don't want to hurt yourself, hurt yourself 
habit that I don't know if anyone else shares, but I keep really detailed spreadsheets of everybody I ever dated from the internet since like 2005. <laughs> I also keep a list, detailed lists of everyone I've ever been intimate with. And these lists, it's in the dozens, it's not yet in the hundreds, but it's in the dozens. It sort of reads like a who's who of bad credit scores. Uh, my friends tell me that I, my vagina is like a soup kitchen and I am like the Mother Teresa of pussy. I'm just sort of like, bad credit, no credit, no problem. Come date me. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I make theater uh, for a living, actually. I tour one-woman shows to colleges around the country. Not, I don't really make money doing that here, but I live here. And I think being an artist or maybe just being in L.A. sort of pulls in the bottom feeders of the dating pool. Maybe L.A. is the bottom feeder of uh, the dating, yes, one person, yeah, dating poll. But I, I, I work a home uh, alone at a home office and it can be really depressing and so online dating for me guarantees that for at least two hours I have to get out of my house and interface live with a human being. So um, I'm, uh, I was on OkCupid a few years ago, which if you're familiar with it, it is sort of like the porta potty of internet dating sites. It's free, everyone's been in there, everyone's shit is in there. Yes, uh, and I, uh, late one night, in my deep depression, I get a message from Richard, and Richard is someone I would normally not reply to because he has one photo uploaded, it's blurry, it's uploaded sideways. <laughs> he's a couple years out of my, he's a couple years too old for me, out of my age range at, at 44. But he messages me and I write back because he says, you know, I've been perusing, this is sort of my hook, line, and sinker thing for, for guys if you want to know. It's, it's, uh, it's, I've been on this site and, and yours is more interesting than anything I've seen on this site. And so feeling like I've won this contest <laughs> makes me reply. And we actually go back and forth and he's talking about things like feminism and meeting Gloria Allred and Gloria Steinem. And he's uh, talking about Miles Davis and Spalding Gray, who if you are in theater like I am, this is, it's so amazing because it's like I don't have to explain what it is I do for a living. And it's like we, we, we are almost sort of like reading each other's minds. And we, we decide to move the conversation to email. We take it to that next level. And all I know about Richard is that he lives in Hollywood and he just sort of describes himself as a cliche musician photographer type. So, so we were emailing over a few days and what is kind of interesting is he's pretty reluctant in terms of revealing his personal information. Like he, he's only said he's Richard. I've Googled his Yahoo email address. I can't find anything on him. My domain name, my email address has my domain name in it. And so it's totally like stalker's paradise. He could totally like find everything he wants about me. We're emailing. I'm actually at my friends, Mike and Nancy's place. They're married and me and Mike are working on this film together. And I'm supposed to be working on the film, but really I'm like, you know, trolling for ass on the internet on the side. And I ask Richard, I say, you know, you have all this information on me why don't I have something like, you know, your last name? And he writes back and says, well, my last name, it's, it's sort of waspy and plain. It's Hall. Uh, sort of like a Johnson or Smith, I'm a Hall. So, of course, I, go, I, go, I take that information, Richard Hall, and I Google Richard Hall photographer. 
And the fourth finding in Google is for Richard Melville Hall, otherwise known by his stage name, Moby. And everything lines up from ever, all these weird details about having just moved from New York. He'd actually sent me pictures of his photography, which were of crowds. And I don't even confer with Mike and Nancy, who I'm in their house with. I just write back right away, holy shit, are you Moby? <laughs> and he writes back, yeah, I was trying to figure out how to break this information to you. I am Moby, and to prove that it wasn't like a catfish situation, he says, I'm gonna put this on my Twitter feed in about 15 minutes, and he sends me like this tweet, and lo and behold, it shows up on his Twitter feed in 15 minutes, and then we start to email at his Moby.com email address. And I can't hold it in any longer at Mike and Nancy's place, and I jump up from the computer and I start screaming, holy shit, I just met Moby on OkCupid, I am going to be rich, I'm gonna be rich, I'm gonna be rich, I'm going to marry Moby, I'm gonna marry Moby, oh my god, we're gonna be rich, we're gonna be rich, we're gonna be rich. But when I and do a somersault off the couch and I but I don't tell you know I obviously don't relay this to Moby I try to act really calm and cool I don't want to come across as one of those people that's going to blab to the whole world that Moby's on OkCupid which is basically what I'm doing now but I don't want to come across that way and I'm like oh that's cool yeah that's cool yeah 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 I, uh, I, I, I listen to some of your music it's really cool um, but I'm basically, I'm freaking out because I am going to marry Moby. And I go home, I live in Koreatown. I, I, I just had, at, at this point I had bought a small condo in Koreatown like a year and a half before I get home to Koreatown. And I'm like, oh my God, I've met Moby. I'm going to meet Moby. We're going to meet up. It's going to be so great. And I'm looking at my place in Koreatown and I'm like, holy shit. I can't have Moby over. I, I still have boxes everywhere. I have skyscrapers of paper lined up. There's no parking in K-Town. Down the block there are MS-13 tags and gra like graffiti tags from the really scary gang. That Those are my neighbors, you know? And I'm like, I can't have Moby over here. He lives in the Hollywood Hills. I, I'm so broken. There are homeless people sleeping in the parking lot next door to my building. This is, I, I can't have Moby over. And so I decide, I need to clean this house. I need to prepare for Moby coming over to come visit me. And so over the next month, I am still emailing Moby, but I am also on this mission to prepare for the arrival of my future husband, Moby, coming over to Koreatown to come visit me. And in this month, I am doing things like reading up on Moby. I'm reading up about the Eminem beef that he had because, and, and listening to all his albums because that's what Moby would want of a future wife is someone who's up to date on 10-year-old gossip, right? And, I, and every friend I run into, I tell them the story. I swear them to secrecy to the point that I've sworn about 50 people to secrecy about me meeting Moby. And everyone is super excited for me. And all my friends, it seems, have a stake in me marrying Moby. Like... Mike needs me to marry Moby so that Moby can be the executive producer of Mike's next film. My friend Paul needs me to marry Moby so that me, Moby, Paul, and his new girlfriend can go on a double date and then Paul can seem really cool to his new girlfriend. Um, my friend Ian, who does the tech design for my theater shows, needs me to marry Moby so that Moby can design the music for my show and then we will for sure get an audience because we have a Grammy-nominated musician doing the music for my theater show. And, um, and my friend Jen needs me to marry Moby so that we can go to the MTV uh, Music Awards she would be my plus one, right? So, so I'm basically, I'm, I'm prepping for Moby and the, um, 
the messages that we're exchanging have changed actually uh, quite dramatically. Uh, at the point that Moby reveals himself as Moby, and I know that he's Moby, it, it, they're no longer these sort of stream of conscious uh, type exchanges. He, they, they get shorter and, and shorter, and, um, and I am super self-conscious. It takes me sometimes half an hour to construct four sentences in, in the vein of sort of emo, cool, uh, I would just sort of shut this off with my fingers, and really I'm just so super paranoid about what I'm projecting to him, and I'm, am I projecting the qualities of a good wife? And I, as, as I'm cleaning my home, you know how Christians have that mantra, um, WWJD, what would, what would Jesus do? Like in times of crisis, they think about what would their Lord and Savior do in this moment of crisis. My new mantra becomes WWMWD, what would Moby's wife do? And I conduct myself I, I, in the vein of someone who's going to be rich in a year. I've convinced myself that in a year I will be living in the Hollywood Hills, that I will have lots of rich friends and so much money and I realize a lot of the problems that I've been holding on to in this present moment of cleaning my home don't matter anymore like like so many of my problems had to do with being poor and not having enough or having bitterness and resentment to people that it won't matter because in a year from now I'm gonna be friends with all sorts of rich people in the Hollywood Hills it won't matter and 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 I I just instantly drop all this baggage that I have with old people so our <laughs> our emails begin to shift even more um, we we do talk about, well, let's meet up soon, let's meet up soon, but we're, we always seem to be in and out of town at different times. And it's about four months into uh, my earliest exchanges with Moby, and I always try to touch on something about my life, and it's gotten to the point that he doesn't actually even acknowledge what's happened that I've mentioned in my emails, whether it's my cat dying or uh, just things I'm doing or where I am on the road, he just sends funny photos at this point, like funny photos from the internet, like of a guy with a hairy chest that, that's waxed with a heart on the chest, like, the, like a, a little dog wearing a funny sweater. And, and I begin to dread uh, meeting Moby. Like, what, what will happen if we don't get along? I, I'm kind of actually enjoying the mindset that my life is in at this moment. What if I meet him and we don't even get along? Or what if we do get along, we do hit it off, we do get married, and this same sort of cold exchanging that is happening now with email happens in our home. What if I am in this beautiful parlor that I live in with him in the Hollywood Hills and, and I, I am in an emotional crisis and he only responds with sending photos? I, I wouldn't tolerate this of anybody else. I'm only tolerating it of Moby because He's rich, and he has money, and he has agency. And I had to think, well, if I'm in the hills with him, and we get into a fight, am I going to let him win this fight? Am I going to let him get his way because I don't want to move back to Koreatown with the MS-13 gang? Um, or am I going to stand up for myself? Of course I'm going to stand up for myself. And I decide that I'm going to write Moby an email and ask him to be a little bit more connected to me. So I write him an email and I say, you know, Moby, I really appreciate that you've been sending, you know, these cute photos. I'll always look at them, but I can't help but feel like every time I send you a message like detailing things in my life that I can't even tell that you've read it. Uh, you don't seem to acknowledge it in my emails and it would be nice if you just acknowledged some of the content in the messages I'm sending to you. And I sent it. And he never wrote back. He never wrote back after that point. 
and my friends were so pissed off at me. Paul was like, you have to write him back and apologize for sending that. You, you, just, you have to just write him one more time. Uh, Mike was like, you shouldn't have ever told him that you knew it was Moby. You should have just kept it a secret. You should have just kept it to yourself. You should have just, just, just acted like on your first date that you didn't know it was him and, and just carried it out. And I said, guys, no, it's not that bad. I mean, yeah, okay, so I never got to meet Moby or marry Moby, but look how clean my house is. <laughs> Look how much old baggage I've dropped from my life, like all the resentments I've dropped. And I am more hopeful than I've ever felt in my entire life. In ways, I am more prepared for finding love than I was before this. And in ways, this non-meeting with Moby was sort of the perfect relationship. So I guess the moral of the story is, if you are a hoarder and uh, have low (laughs) self-esteem, You should go to Craigslist and go to the casual encounters section and look for like a blurry dick photo and just tell yourself that's Keith Richards and that he wants you in the hills and he's going to marry you and you have so much power and you'll just start cleaning your house. Anyways, I'm Christina Wong. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I'm genuinely, uh, I can't decide between two different things uh, to talk about. So do people want to hear a ghost story or a story about acid? Acid. Okay. <laughs> fuck. Fuck. That's the one Kevin said I should do. Uh, I, I, I told Kevin I was torn and he said that and I didn't want to listen to him. So... Uh, I grew up with Kevin, like, in college and stuff. Uh, Kevin Allison, who does this wonderful show. And he uh, was with me this whole time, but doesn't know any of this stuff. And he said, well, fuck, I'd like to hear the acid stuff. Um, so, uh, I, I've done a lot of acid. <laughs> I've done a, at least 400 hits of acid. And I know that because over about a four-year period... And I know that because while I was doing it, I was sort of keeping track. And I say, not lightly, acid is very much a part of why I am who I am. Acid is very much a a reason that my brain works the way it does. And this is the story of my bad trip that I had. So, the first time I ever did acid, I bluffed myself into it. After my freshman year of college, I went to New York University, and then I came back to Tennessee, where I'm from, a very small town in Tennessee, where I really only had two friends. And when I came back, they said, they had discovered acid their freshman year. And they said, have you done acid, man? And I, and I, I was big New York big shot, and I didn't want to admit, no, of course I haven't done acid. And so I said, yeah, acid's great. I love acid. Uh, <laughs> And they said, good, pop, 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 Uh, let's do some right now. And so I took four tabs of acid and launched into it. And that that was the first time I'd ever done it. And 
the big thing I remember from that first trip was driving around in the mountains in Josh's old Volkswagen bug, and there were there were holes in the floorboards, so you could see the road uh, <laughs> and going through, and, and we were listening to. Uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds loud and the mercy seed is waiting over and over and over and again and it's pouring rain and I'm in the back like trying to keep my feet on the beams so that I don't go through to the road and it's pouring rain and rain is splashing up from the road and just tripping balls and my friend Sam is in the passenger seat with a coke bottle and he's going hey guys hey guys hey guys nothing And over the course of the trip, he must have done it 50 times. And I'm holding on, and we're racing down these deserted roads. And the next day, uh, Sam told me that his Coke bottle was singing Elvis songs to him. And when he was trying to get our attention so that we could see, the the Coke bottle was going, Uh, So that's what that that was, was happening. And... It was not raining the night before at all. And his uh, Volkswagen did not have holes in the floorboards. So I was in. I loved acid. I, I, like after that, uh, that was the most fun. I, it's, it's a, a uh, if you've never, who's here done acid? Woo! Woo! Yeah, it, it's, it's a nitrous engine through a funhouse. And I, I loved it. And part of that first acid trip sort of made me the way I was the rest of my acid experience, which is I was in control. Like when something terrifying happened, I could very calmly steer away from it and go that way. You know, when I, when I started to think dark, scary thoughts that I didn't want to think, I was very, very competent at just like, okay, I'm not going to think about that. Or, or walk into a weird place I'd never been before, and that corner's got a scary, well, I'm not going to go into that corner. I'm going to go that way. And, and, and I think that's because the very first trip I ever had, I was pretending I'd, I was the pro. I'm the captain of the ship, guys. Don't worry. Everybody's okay. You're with me. I'm going to weather us through this storm. And that attitude kept me through acid my whole time I did acid. And there was really good acid around. This is in the late 80s. So I could trip balls and be in public. Um, I, I did acid in museums and at school and in restaurants. And I could order. And, and nobody knew that I was totally fucking tripping balls and that people's faces were like melting off of their skulls. But I, I was... I knew it was the acid, and I was totally in control. And, and, and part of that, I think, was because I was weird and quiet all the time anyway. But I, I spent a weekend in Vegas with people where I did 12 hits of acid over three days, and nobody knew. None of my friends knew that I was on acid. I always tripped alone, always, this whole time. After I left my buddies in Tennessee and went back to New York, I tripped alone. I think because I'm a weird private person and didn't want to share stuff. And I think because... I've been around people who have a bad trip and you have to rescue them. And so you spend your trip keeping your shit together and like arranging the helicopters to get the guy down out of the ravine when you should just be fucking hiking in the Alps and having a great time. And, and, and so I, I tripped alone and, and I tripped alone a lot. I was so good at people not knowing I was on acid. I got pretty casual about using it. I accidentally once tripped with my parents for six hours. Um, My parents were not hippies. My parents were Church of Christ. 
my friends and I in Tennessee had a system. I had an uncle with a cabin way up in the mountains, like this evil dead looking fucking cabin way out in the middle of nowhere. And so we would go up there and do acid and trip for days in a row. And so the system was Josh would call, we would hit boom because it was a 40 minute drive up to this cabin so that like it would start to kick in when you left the highway and get onto the dirt road so that you start to enter wonderland when the road gets bumpy and and, and it was perfect so new year's eve he says i'm starting the car drop so i drop boom 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 and i'm sitting there and i'm waiting for josh to pull up and 10 minutes go by and 30 minutes go by and an hour goes by and my my brain is starting to get weird and uh, josh calls and said car won't start dude happy new year so any other night my parents would have been in bed by nine but it's new year so they're up the whole time so i'm there tripping balls watching dick clark uh <laughs> and realizing that i am my father which at 20 is a big realization to make. Like in 20, when you realize, oh, everything I'm doing, I'm thinking I'm this weird punk rock avant-garde dude. I'm just my dad. I drink the same fucking beer. I walk the same. I talk the same. I hate the same commercials. You know, and, and, and that at 20 is a big realization. Uh, back in New York, I continued doing acid a lot. I did acid, and when it was warm, I hung out in Washington Square Park or... Central Park and walked around and when it was cold I went into the Natural History Museum or the Met because uh, they were both free uh, the Natural History Museum I, uh, for those of you who don't know I wrote the movie Night at the Museum which makes a lot of sense that I did a lot of acid <laughs> like, uh, like 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 and I and I and I, and I didn't. I had, a, I had a partner writing that, so I didn't write the whole thing. But there are moments in that movie that are totally fucking happened to me, man. Like the, the uh, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt never spoke to me, but I know the sensation in that museum of like walking down the dark halls and sort of forgetting where you are because you're listening to. Oh wow, listen to that cool accent. Listen to what those kids are talking about. And you forget where you are, and then all of a sudden, fucking dinosaur! Fuck! Like, and you genuinely, for about half a second, think there's a really a fucking alive dinosaur right there. And, and in this existence, half a second is a long time to think that there's really a dinosaur right there. And so I experienced that. And I also, the dioramas, like the dioramas in Natural History Museum in that movie are very much from my acid days. Because I remember looking at the dioramas and spending tons of time and thinking, how do, how do they know when one of them, there's so many, how do they know one of them didn't get out? And then laughing hysterically in my head at how funny it would be to go to a garden and say, how do you know one of them didn't get out? Um, and that, that was the drug. So I, I learned a lot on acid. The two big things that changed my life from that drug were I was a really angry kid. I was a punk rock. I, my parents were not great to me, or at least I thought not at the time. And I was a punk rock kid in Tennessee, so I had green hair in Tennessee, so I, people slashed my tires, and so I was an angry, angry kid. And I, I took that anger with me to New York, and I, I cut myself, and I had pins in my skin, and, and I, was a, I was a furious. And an acid trip gave me a big realization that, like ecstasy, when you make a realization on acid, it sticks, if it's true. And I realized, like, I'm not obsessed about other people. I'm walking around all day thinking that everybody hates me or thinking that everybody thinks I'm weird or stupid because of my accent or everybody in NYU has better clothes than me and I think everybody hates me and I realized people don't think about 
people they don't know. People don't think about their coworkers. People are so wrapped up in their own brain that they're not hating you. They don't have time. They don't think about it. And that's a kind of an obvious realization to make. But without acid, I never would have made that realization. And it changed me from being a paranoid, hateful, angry person to fine. I can just walk around. Nobody in this room is thinking about me. If I sit in the corner and keep my mouth shut, nobody gives a shit what I'm thinking. <laughs> Which is huge. And, and it, it changed me from being angry to being okay. Uh, and the other thing that it did, acid, was I never wrote a word uh, until I did acid, um, which is just true. Like, I hated writing in high school. I never wrote funny sketches. I was in the state for a year, and I didn't write any sketches the first four shows of the state. But acid did something, uh, and I am now a professional writer. I, I make a lot of money, and I love it. And, and, and thank you. And, 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 but it's, and I enjoy it, and I think it has something to do with some clogs that acid washed through and I think it comes from going to the Met and looking at paintings saying wow Christ looks like a boxer in that one hey how you doing St. Paul what are you doing hey let's go over to this talk to this dragon and like loosening up this weird sort of dialogue in my head that now is my fucking job um, and that's acid um, so I started using it so much that I, I really wasn't learning anything I was just sort of fucking around on it and I realized I can't do acid forever. I looked bad. I was skinny. I looked like Sid Vicious, which at the time I thought was cool, but my friends were worried about me, and, and I looked like I was about to drop dead because I never ate. My skin was bad. I was skinny, um, and I should stop. And I realized that if I was going to stop doing acid, I can't do it with having always avoided that monster in the corner. Um, I knew that the scary idea in my head or the scary thing under the stairs, I always go, hey, I'm not going to think about that. And I know that if I'm really going to use acid as a tool to make my brain better, I have to go, I have to face this thing. I have to find out what's there. And it's probably going to be okay. But I can't have avoided a big thing my brain is saying for all of these trips. So that's what I did. My big fear from doing this was two friends really ever for the first like 17 years of my life these two guys who did acid with me and one of them acid totally fucked up one of them was probably a better writer than I was at least when I was 18 and acid changed him between freshman year and sophomore year the, the time I saw him those two summers I, I came back and he was a different guy and I don't mean in an esoteric way I mean he couldn't put words together um, he he was a different guy and he tried to explain to me once that he had a bad trip, that uh, he was making out with some girl, and suddenly she was a mannequin. And then suddenly he was on the floor making out with this mannequin in a room full of people, and they were all watching him. And he said at the time, I don't know what really happened. I don't know, was, was it a girl that I freaked out with? Was I really making love with a mannequin? I don't know. But he lost something. He would say, I hit the fucking brake. Like when he wasn't on drugs, he would just sort of say that sometimes. So it wasn't like an esoteric, you're slightly a different guy. Like acid did something damaging to Sam. And so there's that. Part of my brain was like, is that going to happen to me? But I needed to do it. If I was going to stop doing this drug, I needed to make this trip. I needed to go there. So I did. I took five hits of acid and I went. Uh, the trip geographically, I walked from where I lived on 10th in New York down to Washington Square Park, all the way up Fifth Avenue to Central Park, through Central Park, down Broadway, back to 10th, which is about 20 miles. I walked this whole trip. It wasn't monsters that got me. Like, it's hard to describe, but the fear that happened, and I don't know how it began, was 
it's not that I couldn't remember who I was, and it's not that I didn't know who I was. It's that I knew who I was, and who I was was nobody. I was nothing. And I, so I was walking around thinking, well, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Um, well, I've got pink hair. Uh, yeah, that's not you. That's bullshit. You're doing that to impress people so that you can avoid actual conversations. Uh, who are you? Well, you, I'm an actor at NYU. You don't want to be an actor. You don't take it seriously. You're making fun in your head of all these people who want to be actors. Who are you? Uh, well, uh, I, I'm from Tennessee. You don't want to be from Tennessee. You don't take pride in that. Who are you? And it was peeling an onion, and there was nothing in the middle of the onion. I knew all the things that I wasn't. I knew all the things I was pretending to be. There was nothing else. There was nothing in the middle. And it wasn't a esoteric, sitting on a psychiatrist's couch exploration of that. I was bawling and with snot running down my face and terrified because I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know, where, I didn't know to go back to 10th Street because... Like, I didn't, know, I didn't know who I was. Like, very real, I didn't, I wasn't anybody. It's terrifying. Uh, thanks, Kevin, for suggesting this one. Thanks, guys. <laughs> it's a really good ghost story, you guys. Uh, so, so I, I, I really genuinely didn't know who I was. And the things, a couple of things came out of it. I, uh, I uh, shaved my head for the first time and never dyed my hair again. That's nothing. I, I uh, had a Walkman that I used to listen to all the time, and I threw it into the reservoir in New York, uh, Central Park, because I realized I was avoiding people by listening to music instead of really being where I was. I used to, at the end of state shows, there would be parties, and I never went. I would go away because I was scared. I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't want to be there. This is my phone now. It doesn't play music. It doesn't have videos. Because I want to be here. Uh, like I, and, and this was 20 years ago. But it was because it, it taught me that I was avoiding just being where I was and being myself to the extent that I wasn't anybody. And I would say in a very real way, who I am now started that night that I, I realized, like, well, I'm nobody yet. But I have to start to be something. I have to really start to listen to people and be honest with people and open people and be something, even if it means I suck. <laughs> you know, like, I have to be that. Even if it means I have to, like, let pe people know what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. And that's really when I began to realize, well, I'm going to be a writer. Even if I'm not good at it, that's the one thing that I'm kind of doing and I'm going to do it. I kind of opened up to people and... I'm still not the most open person in the world. As anybody who knows me knows, I'm still very, very quiet and very, very shy. Uh, but I'm a writer. You're somebody. Well, that's not, that's not what I mean. I, 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 everybody is somebody. Uh, I, I, I'm like, but I'm a writer. I know that. Uh, I don't have many friends, but the friends I have know everything there is to know about me, and I trust them and I love them, which I didn't have before. And... I mean, I'm, I'm doing great. Like, I'm not, like, living on the street. I have a big, giant house from all these stupid movies. But, but, uh, but it really made me who I am by washing the slate clean and making me realize that I, at that point, really was a bunch of bullshit that I was telling people. And that's a good thing to learn at such an early age. And uh, the other weird thing that I think about a lot is, you know, Sam took a, some weird acid and he never came back me too like there was another guy that took those five tabs and that guy's gone 
That is all for this week, folks. This is Connor Youngblood behind me now. And again, that was Ben Garant with that remarkable story we just heard told at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. We are there every fourth Thursday. We are at the Pit in New York City every fourth Thursday. And our touring show's coming up. Atlanta, we are in your city on November 6th. And we have workshops the next day. Uh, you can find out about the workshops through villagecomedy.com. The workshops are, I'm doing one in sketch comedy and one in uh, storytelling. Albuquerque, we are at Pornotopia on uh, November 13th, but uh, I'll also be there next couple of days teaching kink workshops at uh, Albuquerque Pornotopia. Uh, Minneapolis, we are in town on the 4th of December. The pitch deadline for that is pretty much right now. So if you want to be included in the Minneapolis show, get your pitches to us. Write to me at kevin at risk-show.com or just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. The theme for that Minneapolis show is dangerous. And then on the 12th of December, we are in Seattle the theme that night is fucked up. The pitch deadline is about mid-November for that. So also, if you live in Seattle, pitch us your stories, your fucked up stories. And don't forget that we teach storytelling as well. Not just storytelling in this wild, uncensored realm like Risk, but also more conservative and practical stories. For example, that you might tell in the business world. At thestorystudio.org, we do one-on-one -on -one training, we do corporate training for staffs, we do workshops in New York and Los Angeles for creative people, people who want to get up on stage and share stories. There's a lot to learn. If you go to thestorystudio.org, there's our online class that you can take in your own time. Just get on over there and become a part of all of this at thestorystudio.org. Finally, Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts and just like all the other podcasts at maximum fun we are listener supported we very much rely on the help of the people who love what we do so go there go to maximumfund.org donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk folks here is a neither stoned nor drunk meat <laughs> saying today's the day take a risk
Dickie Moe. Dickie Moe.